Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Literal Fiction Book Club, where we read books so you don't have to. My name is Sam Johnson, and joining me today is Alex. Hey. Troy. What's up, everyone? And my brother, Tom. Hello, hello. You can give us your thoughts, responses, tirades, and corrections by leaving a voicemail on our Book Nerds hotline. The number is one 9782553404. To kick things off, we are going to pick a topic that is as far away from the coronavirus as humanly possible, and that is um, the the variety of YouTube holes we found ourselves in um, in uh, in quarantine here. So, um, Troy, you were telling us about how you were going down the Instacarma YouTube hole. Yeah, I mean, it's satisfying at first just because people are speeding and then, like, cops immediately catch them. And then there's annoying ones where people are, like, drunk or assaulting someone and then somebody that knows boxing just beats the hell out of them. But then there's also really random ones that are on the thread where it's like, this is what happens if you break quarantine in India. And it's just like Indian police beating people with bats. And I was like, oh, <laughs> God, <laughs> like, oh, all right. And then it just it gets weirder and weirder from there. There's like Brazilian police like throwing stuff at people or throwing things at people on a beach to like get them off the beach. And I was like, I don't really feel like and the karma from this, but okay. And, but it's like, it's not satisfying. Like Alex, you were saying it's addicting because you just keep watching, but I'm not like, Oh yeah, those people got what they deserved. It's just like, Oh God, I hate these people. I have to watch more of them. Right. Have you guys seen when they, like when people post videos and it's somebody like absolutely wiping out or like, you know, smashing their head on something. And at the end it gives that like video game wasted thing. And it like pans yeah. out in the black. I have found myself for literally 30, 45 minutes, sometimes an hour, just watching video after video of people just absolutely wiping out and just like that wasted like thing that happened. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll I'll stop after like an hour and be like, what have I even been doing? <laughs> like <laughs> filling yeah, my I, time. I used to watch those um like like fail compilation videos where you'd have um my favorite one was like if a a truck like fell into a uh, canal or something and they got a crane and then the crane was pulled over into yeah. the canal. Right. And like that kind of shit. Um, I did end up watching back in the old days. I would watch those go on the, um, on 4chan and, and look at the, uh, the wrecked threads. Um, oh yeah. That's pretty fucking gruesome, dude. <laughs> yeah. Those are they, gruesome. Those are a little tough. Sometimes they would do the ones without like the really horrible stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a little more palatable, but I mean, I definitely spent my time in those threads too. <laughs> yeah, I've seen like too many where it's like, yeah, it's wrecked or it's, uh, what was that other site? I forget the name of it, but they like wouldn't allow it on YouTube, but it's basically like, oh, haha, there's a car crash, except like what actually happens. And there's people just like in pieces. And I was like, oh my God. But it's the same thing. It's like, oh God, now I just have to watch more of these. Well, it's just like the typical, like, it's so bad you can't look away and you just find yeah. yourself down that like wormhole. Mm. Yeah. And it's just like having uh, like seeing video content that's completely uncensored in that way is uh, a thrilling prospect at two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Next like, thing you know, you're watching video after video filmed by the Russians about Aleppo. <laughs> right. <laughs> I remember like a year yeah. and a half ago, I got like way down the Syria rabbit hole. <laughs> 
Oh yeah, dude, like, me too. Watching all the front line videos, I'd like jump from point to point on the front line, or like watching uh, Kurdish videos in Turkey. Like there's some crazy stuff. Yeah, this you like same with Ukraine. Like there's some yeah, unbelievable yep. videos of the Ukrainian conflict. There's the one that was like pretty viral of the guy the guy get like dying and then another guy taking his phone out and calling his mom and being like we killed your son i'm sorry have you seen that video yeah 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 damn dude unreal man i've seen i don't know why the ones that always interest me most are like protests or really just how mass protests and riots have like evolved but all over the world like the hong kong ones for whatever reasons, the one in Chile last year over like a gas tax, those ones are really brutal. Like people were throwing Molotovs a lot, like more so than in Ukraine even. Damn. My um favorite, the uh, Syria one was there was like a, it, it felt like a promo video of this like kind of chubby um, jihadi. And he was just like going around. He had his, his like clearly his friend, um videotaping him and he was just he was pretty like portly and he would just kind of like find like a hole in one of the walls and just shoot his ak-47 through it and then just look back at the camera and be like yeah i'm cool and (laughs) yeah dude i feel like i'm on a list for well for that and then it's just a short hop skip and a jump away to isis propaganda but it's like i mean we're already here it's like I got to watch these now because everybody shows them on the news, but then they obviously just show you the truncated pieces. And the songs, the songs are bangers, you know? Oh, fuck yeah, dude. The Kurdish war songs are good. Yeah, whoever ISIS's social media intern is doing a good job, banging job. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to find out like 15 years from now that, you know, the the PR person for, you know, some, I don't know, vegetarian cloth making company is the former ISIS social media person. Yeah. They're just like, it's, it was tough. Like, I needed a job. <laughs> Will do for experience. The whole caliphate thing didn't work out, you know, and so I was like, ah, I gotta, I gotta get health insurance, man. I mean, you gotta feed the kids, you know, you gotta support right. the family. You gotta find some way to make it happen. Alex, what was the one that you had sent me of, like, the Kurdish militias in northern Iraq? And then, but it had, like, comedy as a laugh track. There's, like, a laugh track in the background. But it was, like, actual frontline desert combat. Like, it was pretty intense. But it was on YouTube, too. It was weird. But they're just, like, shooting off bottle rockets. And then there's just, like, I don't know, your typical uh, rom-com or sitcom laugh track. It was really weird damn dude i don't even remember that but it that was some of the best stuff that was some of the rawest footage that there was the, the pkk and the ypg like have a lot of uh like firsthand videos that they just like upload kind of like isis does but it's usually a little less at least like not as terrifying yeah just because they're not isis yeah isis is pretty bad yeah not a fan <laughs> well isis doesn't oh, even have any videos of them like in battle it's just them killing people that are bound and it's like lame one also genocidal and evil but lame like you guys are not outdoing the uh the kurds right now their videos are definitely better <laughs> i would definitely hire the kurdish media intern over the isis <laughs> media oh, intern. 
Well, because the, the, the Kurdish guy, the interns are like, they're like dudes from like California or they're like mm. Dutch guys. Like yeah, they, they, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's that video. What was it? Oh, man, I'm trying to find it. There's so many ISIS fail compilations on YouTube. But there's the one of the video of the guy in the truck and he's like shooting off an RPG and just like roasting the guys behind him, like not even thinking about it. And they're all like screaming <laughs> at him. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta have to find it. We should put it in the episode uh, description. It's really funny in terms of ISIS just being pathetic. Oh my god! If only you could win wars based on your social media influence. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what some liberals think. You know, you know it's, got, <laughs> it's all you know. The the people who win wars are with uh, the army with the most blue check marks. You know, <laughs> yeah. like, most verified accounts <laughs> win. Yeah. Mm. It's like a really depressing version of 1984. Whoever controls the present controls the past. Right. It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> a really lame version of that. Yeah. It's, the truth is determined by number of retweets. So. Oh like yeah, Alex, worst. you recently jumped onto uh, back onto Twitter. That's uh the funniest funniest people are on Twitter, but the worst people are on Twitter. This is I, this is my first time I think like ever really on Twitter. Like I thought about making an account a couple times, but I uh, I did it. I guess I haven't really posted anything yet. But you know, Twitter is this be... a shit posting account? Uh, I don't know. I just wanted it so I could follow all the people who I thought sounded cool. Pretty boring, you know. But you know, I'm sitting around all day. Well, you say that, but Twitter can be like a black hole. I don't even have one anymore, but it's just like when I did, like the cesspool that is Twitter a lot of times is just unbelievable. The stuff that you can find yourself just diving into and you look back and you're like, how the hell did I even get here? (laughs) There's some good Uh, comedy though. I uh, Even just today looking through Instagram at random memes, I was like, oh yeah, I remember this account and that account. Like, they're all extremely depressed, so <laughs> just be prepared for that. Like, your mental right. health will start on a gentle decline, but right. they are very funny. <laughs> it's oh, like... we didn't end up, um, uh, well, go ahead, Tom. I'm... No, 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 go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, um, we, I want to talk about um, Nathan Robinson. That, oh, that link man. I'm, that was, like, part of why I was, like, the first thing I saw, and I was like, I just got to make a Twitter account. That shit was so funny. Oh, dude. Okay, so, Tom, you don't know who this guy is. Uh, maybe, Troy, you don't know either. But um, Nathan Robinson is the editor of this magazine called Current Affairs, which is like a liberal left magazine, like big Bernie supporters. Um, and Nathan Robinson, uh, if you like, if you want to look him up right now, if you have your computer. Um, I just pulled he has it a up. Vi- Hilarious. Yeah, so he has, he has a very punchable face, and he has an even more punchable voice. Um, <laughs> It's oh like God, a, yes he does. <laughs> it's he, like this. He literally fake. looks obnoxious. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it gets better. It's like it just keeps getting better and better when you hear about this guy's story. Oh uh, God. And, and he went to Harvard, right? That was like his um, um he's like definitely a waspy kid. He went I to think, Brandeis right? and Yale Law. Ah, okay. Um Oh and, and Harvard. Uh, he has two PhDs. Right. Naturally. So he's extremely qualified. Um and yeah, so the um, Alex shared in our chat this uh, clip of him being like, I really think that the, I can't even do his transatlantic accent, but in a very like fake British voice, I guess. It kind of sounded like uh, Buckley Jr. from the National Review. <laughs> uh, and 
he was talking about how he wished, you know, that that Karl Marx never existed and that the left would have been better off without him. And then perfectly and then failed to sum up anything accurate about Marxism and just like dismissed it out of hand. Um, but it was, uh, I don't know, like a perfect encapsulation of like the kind of person on the left that I loathe because it's not a, it's, they come off as anti as intellectuals while being completely anti-intellectual. Right. Uh, right. You know, also he has a fake, he wears a three piece suit. He has a fake accent. Uh, he just posts these like unbelievably just making fun of him personally. Like the, the stupidest fucking shit online. It's so sad. Like he posted that video of himself, like hanging out of his car being like visiting my mom and dad, but I don't want to get too <laughs> close. <laughs> it's like who took this picture of you man yeah oh man did you see his mom roasted him honestly <laughs> yeah i did that was really good yeah his mom was like he posted like that he was going to be i don't know live streaming or something and she was like i wonder what accent this will be in oh no <laughs> damn that's brutal oh, <laughs> no he getting looks by your like- mom he just looks like a like pseudo intellectual person. Like he looks like he just takes on the persona of someone he thinks would look smart, which is already yeah, off pretty much. Yeah, and it's just like he wears those stupid fucking hats and Yeah, um, no amount of PhDs allows you to wear a fedora. None. I don't care how many PhDs you have. <laughs> Not even a PhD in fedoras allows you to wear fedoras. I'm going to be honest, he kind of looks like Tucker Carlson but like a little bit goofier and with a fedora. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So today we are discussing the pioneering dystopian novel, We, by, does it, like, how do you spe- say this guy's name? Uh, you know? I, well, the first name's Yevgeny. The last name's Zamyatin, I think. Yevgeny Zamyatin. Um, That's how I think it's pronounced. That sounds correct. That doesn't sound... I was going to say, like, Yevgeny Zemyatin. <laughs> well, the first name is definitely Yevgeny. I know that. The first name is definitely Yevgeny? Definitely Yevgeny. 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 Okay. Um, so we're going to go with Yevgeny Zemyatin. Um, so it, it's We by Yev, Yevgeny Zemyatin. Uh, it has inspired its own particular and popular genre, which includes Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, George George Orwell's 1984, Kurt Vonnegut's Player Piano, and Ayn Rand's Anthem. What binds this genre together is its focus on a citizen of a feared future who discovers their society is not as it seems and ends up resisting that society in some way. We was written in 1920 to 21 during the Russian Civil War in Russia. Um, Its quality as the first of this genre is that it is defining tropes rather than submitting to them. The free-spirited lover in I-330, the discovery of freedom, the ration, a complete rationalized society, all come from we, and so they feel fresh rather than worn. Additionally, because it was written before the rise of Nazi Germany or Stalinist Russia, it is not beholden to the historical weight of either of those regimes. It was, however, given the illustrious honor of being the first book banned by the Soviet Union. And that is what makes we special. Um, I think George Orwell put it best in his review of the novel, which we'll put in the description. Um, He says, It may well be, however, that Zemyatin did not intend the Soviet regime to be the special target of his satire. Writing at about the time of Lenin's death, he cannot have had the Stalin dictatorship in mind, and conditions 
Russia in 1923 were not such that anyone would revolt against them on the ground that they were becoming too safe and comfortable. What Zemyatin seems to be aiming at is not any particular country, but the implied aims of industrial civilization. Um, it's also worthwhile to note that Zemyatin spent a good deal of time in Britain prior to this and wrote a few uh, satire novels about uh, British culture and British life. And so I think what makes we good is that it is uh, it is universal in a sense, um, and it is actually not really, it is dealing with the kind of concept of totalitarianism prior to its existence in any real form. Uh, and I think that is what recommends it. So I just kind of want to start it off with, well, what do we um, what do we think of the book in general? I guess what is everybody's initial thoughts on this first half here? Um, so we'll do a roundtable here. Um, Troy, you want to go first? Sure. I wish that I had read this before 1984 and Brave New World because as I was reading it, especially with the trope of the lover or the need to get your rocks off being the thing that breaks you out of utopia, like. I just felt like I've read this before, and obviously I feel like Brave New World more so than 1984 heavily, heavily draws on this, but it is cool that this is the first one, and I like the, not the innocence of it, because they do have the great benefactor, like, atomizing people, so it's not completely benevolent, but it feels so much nicer and cleaner than the other ones just because the totalitarianism that leads to the Second World War hasn't happened yet. So it's interesting in that it's almost still somewhat hopeful, which makes sense because this guy was a Bolshevik up until, uh, when did it say, like 1918? or whatever. Yeah, think so. Whenever he leaves the party. But uh, so it's like, it's cool that it's younger or older rather than the other works. And that, like you'd said in the intro, that it's setting these tropes rather than like using them. And it's kind of like, wow, it's impressive that the list of things that borrowed from this is quite a list. Yeah, I think this is like the one like genre, I, you know, whatever, like slice of literature that I've read most of the books of. Um, and uh, it is interesting to see how the the like the themes of this book are so well followed in all of its uh, future iterations. Uh, it, unlike, I would say even um it, it's not like it's like the plot is part of the genre rather than like say like fantasy where it's a certain setting or certain types of beings that are um common between stories but not really the stories themselves um whereas this has a pretty well defined plot um that is played with in varying degrees but is pretty consistent in its major plot points um alex what did you think I thought that um, it, I, I th something that I think like this stood out to me that was cool was like the, uh, like the rational and scientific uh, like focus on like what this dystopia is like, which I think like is is different than uh, 1984. I haven't read Brave New World to be honest, but um, so I, maybe it's like that, maybe it's not. I don't know, but um, I think that it's kind of cool to see coming from like a uh, early 20th century socialist. Because I think, like, if you look at even some of like the utopian talk of early socialists, I don't know about them now, that it was about like kind of like a like a, a scientifically grounded society that's like hyper rational and is able to make these like you know uh, coherent plans to like you know 
have the the species be happy, happy, healthy, long living and prosperous. Um, So I think it's cool to see like this guy being like, oh, this is how it could go wrong. Like when you don't account for like matters of like the human spirit, uh, when you lose sight of that. I thought that like struggle against against that, like the struggle of like the human spirit against, you know, the purely rational as like cool and something that still rings true just in modern life. Agreed. Tom? Um, yeah, so my like initial thoughts, touching on some of what you were talking about when you were introducing the book and stuff like that. So my particular version has an introduction that's written by Clarence Brown. I don't know if you guys have the same one, um, but towards the end of it, uh, it's talking essentially about how, you know, he was exiled from Russia. He was basically like a wanted man and petitioned at a certain point, uh, Joseph Stalin to just exile him essentially. So he was exiled and he, and there was a, an interview that he did and it came out where he was basically making a correlation between, um, uh, this Persian rooster. It's like a, I don't want to call it a fairy tale, but like a, um, a common saying, I guess, in Russia and different countries over there. And it's basically talking about how there was a rooster that had a bad habit of crowing an hour earlier than others and how he kind of related that to him writing this book in where the rooster crowed an hour earlier than everyone else. And it basically got on the the farmer's nerves and he, he killed the rooster for being the first one to crow and how he, you know, I guess, avoided that situation. And just kind of the path that it paved from writing this book. But and I just thought that was an interesting concept of like he was writing ahead of his time, not after it. So I've read 1984. I haven't read A Brave New World. Um, but you can really see how it's like a really raw novel. And yeah, it has correlations to, uh, you know, future totalitarianism, but it's it's ahead of its time. And then as you're reading through it, I really like the way it's written with like each record being almost a journal entry or is a journal entry. And you can see the character shift as the story goes along and how their mentality, his mentality changes and the things that he starts seeing are completely different. And it's just a really unique way to read a book. And it you, you can tell that it's not really influenced on any other literature. It is its own doc, you know, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, and I think that's one of the, you know, I, the in the intro that I read, um, Ursula Le Guin called it like the greatest science fiction book ever yet written. And I think it a lot of that has to do with its, uh, with like, it, this is the innovation, right? And a lot of books in the modern Western canon that are referenced as sort of social commentary on, on life, like 1984, A Brave New World. Um, obviously, to a lesser extent, uh, Ayn Rand's anthem are, uh, you know, born out of this. And I mean, I think that, Alex, I liked your point about the, the, you know, the tension seems to be here, like, what is a rationalized society? And um, what, how does that conflict with like the human desire for freedom? I mean, you comment a little bit on like, so, you know, like early socialists, right, like the point is to have a self-governing civilization right like so where society is naturally rational rather than um dictated to be rational and i think um zamyatin's like his his fear right and why he comes off sort of prophetically here is because um the all of 
all of the history that goes from from when he wrote this book onward is not of the self-governing rationality but is of the dictatorial rationality and uh it it is a bit um it is a bit chilling considering when he wrote this how uh on its like foundational level level it turned out to be correct i wanted to ask you guys in terms of like based on the foundational level there is a lot also i think that's a great compliment to him from ursula Le Guin just because she's an awesome sci-fi writer but it is like when you're the first person there it's like you just get to set up the entire thing like isaac asimov defined everything that we think about in terms of robots it's like he set the rules pretty much everything for fantasy tolkien set so it's like dystopian zimyatin is like the person that set the tropes which is cool but I think it's interesting that in this 1984 and Brave New World, the thing that like breaks people away from the perfect society is the desire for like passionate love because they have companionate love and as much love as you can set up or predetermine beforehand. But like passionate love and then specifically how that interplays with creativity. And I'm just trying to think like could this story arc since they are very similar, could it work without trying to find passionate love being the object? Because in all three books, that is the thing that like changes the main character. And I'm like, could they have substituted anything else and it still work? Yeah, I mean, I would think that they could have. I, I kind of, you know, this in 1984 being the two that I've read, 1984 was a while back, so I'm not super fresh on, you know, remembering a lot of it, but it was just... You can see, and they play it into the story where, like, the term they're using is imagination, you know, and how they're basically trying to get rid of it at a certain point. Um, and what spurs this imagination is this, like, love, you know, for this woman that he comes across. And it would be interesting to see if there was, you know, a way to tie that into something other than, like, the physical, you know, that that's like the one barrier but there's a lot of things in it where as he starts to progress through the story and as these things are happening you know it's describing things as being upside down and he's not seeing things right and he's confused and like his world is falling apart around him which is that like imagination that like he's actually thinking outside the box which is so abnormal for this society um but to your point the original thing is you know, this, like, this lust, this love, this passion for this woman that he comes across, and that's kind of what ignites it. And it'd be interesting to think, like, what other things could create that outside of that? And how could you use that in a story? I feel like he even gets to it, or I feel like they never really get around to jealousy as much as they should. Um, just because, like, sure, there's the spark of passionate love, but, like, once you've been with somebody, and especially if you're just getting, like, a coupon book, where you, it's like, all right, I'm going to have sex with this person on Tuesday and Thursday. It's like, I feel like jealousy would naturally rip that apart, like instantaneously. And then right at the end of where we stopped for this time, oh, I feel bad for oh. She's just like, she's just happy in Utopia, you know? Like, she just wants to use her pink coupons every other day with the two guys that she signed up for. But it's like, nope, she's completely broken apart by this. But I feel like the jealousy is an emotion that I hope he plays on more in the second half. Yeah, no, I would agree. And it is a huge contrast when you think of like the first time that it's introduced that O has a second man that she's with and that they're part of this triangle as they describe it. 
and like how harmonious it seems. And then it starts to describe how this fourth person has come in and <laughs> how that affects their relationship. And before that, when when initially you're just looking at the triangle, there is no jealousy. There is no like it seems harmonious. It seems like, OK, this triangle just works the way that it's quote unquote supposed to work. And then as soon as this fourth character is introduced, um, the entire dynamic changes where that jealousy really does start to like protrude and O gets completely pushed out and she's upset about it and she's, you know, handling it the best that she can and she wants to break ties. But before that, people have these coupon books and they go and do what they want to do. And it just seems like the right blend of things and the jealousy like protrudes through it. And I agree with you. It, it starts to like explain some of it, but it'll be nice in the second half of the book when we read it, if it really starts playing on that more. Yeah, no, I, I, I tend to agree. Um, I think that that the like the reason why the lover as a as a character archetype is so useful here is because it's seen as this sort of um, eternal reservoir of irrationality, right? It's not something that can be rationalized properly, romantic love or passionate love. And I was think actually, um, Troy, I was thinking about how the maybe like a like a parent child relationship might be able to function in this. I think it requires a little bit more of a um, tactful way of approaching it. But um, the like. But that is also kind of an authoritarian, already rationalized relationship, especially in, uh, I don't know how we would conceive of it in our, our modern parent-child relationship, but certainly in the 1920s, you know, there's like the, it's the basic foundation of, of civilization is this, uh, this relationship of authority with the parents and a subordination with the child. But maybe like a sibling relationship could work in this regard, but it's, it's tough. Cause I, I can't really think of something that rises to that, like that level of like, okay, you know, I live in this very um, organized and uh, dictated to society. And well, what kind of thing would shake me out of that? Right. Would it, it, it could only be someone who is both, who is both on the other side, right. Is resisting this, this social structure but is also able to convince me to do so. So that either requires like this passionate love, right? Like I've fallen in love and I can't do anything about it. It's almost out of my control or someone that you, you trust completely. But especially in these dystopian novels, the trust of an individual is related almost wholly to the state. So what do you do? Like it's not supposed, you're not supposed to have familiar relationships. Right. No, and everything's provided for. So it's not like you can't use survival means as the instigator for, you know, detracting from the group and, you know, betraying this one state civilization. It's and there's no nuclear family, like you were saying. I mean, there's no they they take the kids away at birth, you know, they get they get taught in their own environment. They develop different relationships with friends, but you never know who you can trust and who you can't. So if you have everything provided for you, you wake up at a certain time, you go to work at a certain time, you have all the food that you need, you know, everything's nice and clean and, you know, there's no alcohol, no drugs, no belligerence, no violence, none of that, you know, what other than in like instinctual passion, which, you know, being 
love, sex, whatever in this book, what else other than that could possibly be used? Yeah, I don't think there's any other interpersonal relationship. Like it would have to be because passionate love is like it's between you and the other person and that's it. Like I yeah, family or an intense friendship maybe, but those seem like more communal where you're doing something for either a group whereas like you and your lover it's just for the two of you. It's like not meant to be shared. Nobody else is supposed to be there. And I guess that like intimacy and detraction from the group and it being irrational is kind of why it is the most alluring choice for a plot point. Um, I do like in this book versus the other two that come after it. In the other two, it's like the man is the noble hero who like, I want to have love. I want to break free. But in this book, it's like, nope, he's just perfectly fine being a little math calculator. And it's the woman that's drawing him away. So that's like mm-hmm. very different and making me wonder like, oh my God, I hope that he doesn't just get executed in the end. Like if she's a spy, like I right. honestly don't know where it's going because the things that drew from this had it in the reverse where the male main character is the one driving it. But this is completely female driven. So I'm interested to see like what I 330, what her ultimate goal is or how she keeps getting away with it. Yeah, um, Troy, I think that the only way you can really pull off the communal relationships, and I thought that this might be an interesting genre twist, would be to write um, from the perspective of someone who, like, so this is, the, you know, the other part of this genre is it's always like, it, it's off into the future enough where the the past is like it considered almost like an ancient past, right? It's beyond living historical memory. But if you wrote it, from someone who is in that transition period, right? Either like during the war that brought this society about or immediately afterwards where there are people who remember when things, what things were like beforehand. Um, you could have a situation in which you have um, maybe, you know, like a grandfather or something like that, or, um, you know, somebody who uh, has access to like these, uh, these, the the policy making part of this state apparatus to move that around but i just don't think in the you know in the distant future when this society has been cemented as you know forever eternal whatever um that you really can do away with the the lover as a character i think that they could do it like i was trying to think the only other ones that i could really imagine is the desire for creativity or like to create art in some form whatever form like that comes up in all three of the books or if just like the person's consciousness and their struggle with like existentialism or against God, if there is a God versus like that versus what they consider the utopian state. That's like the only other thing that I could imagine. But otherwise, it's like utopia just like wipes it all away, like just by being a utopia. I was just going to say that's like a if you went the God route, then that'd be like a Flannery O'Connor move. Like Southern Gothic dystopia, where you know, like the irrationality of Jesus Christ, you know, the Jesus is always in your heart kind of thing, the redemption, that kind of thing. I feel like that that would be an interesting uh, path to take. I think. Yeah, we just got to re- we need to read the idiot at some point. I have not read that one. That's the one Dostoevsky book I really want to read, but I haven't. But, so, like, but like aesthetic beauty is in this book, and so is artistic creativity. Like, there's the poems. He seems to derive like a uh, some kind of appreciation of from math, 
Like he sees it almost like art, as like as art because he's a mathematician, right? Or is he a physicist? He's a mathematician. He's an yeah, mathematician and engineer. He's like yeah. building the space elevator. Right, mm-hmm. right. So I mean, like it's it seems like that the authors made a point to kind of show that like they've somehow like rationalized artistic creation where it's like like the like the poem is like almost being generated by a human computer rather than like you know coming from like some kind of wellspring of creativity. Which is like an interesting concept with like generated art, but um, so it seems like that he, like the author might not think that that is like enough. Uh, no, I mean that's kind of how I look at it is that he doesn't he doesn't think that it's that compelling of a thing to take this character out of you know his norms and his society and revolt against it. Even when they're talking about uh, the grand piano and when that shows up and when I three thirty you know shows up and starts playing it and all that how like clunky it sounds and it's not like the music that they're used to and it's not perfectly like synthesized and it doesn't sound right and everything from the poems to the music to you know the way things look is so structured that to have somebody break away from that structure would have to be almost too compelling or not um it wouldn't be possible for it to be compelling enough for them to give up everything and risk all this um over something artistic like that you know he sam i think picture. you're right that it has it would have to be like creativity also falls in the same category if it'd have to be within living memory but like if we're so far in the future now that nobody even remembers it like yeah you're right tom i don't think that creativity would be enough to kick him or shake him enough out of his normal life yeah it would have to be something that you miss that's like passed on from a recent you know relative from a grandparent or even like a grand grandparent that they're talking about how things used to be and how it used to sound and like the beauty of it and you know how different it was in a good way but when you're talking you know they're talking a thousand years in the future from uh when they took one state as a as a way of being all that stuff is gone and lost there's no there's no attachment to it so I guess the only contrast that I could really make here um, is with is with um, Ayn Rand's anthem, which um, I haven't read. Uh, whatever it is, the is it uh, Fountainhead? What's her like super famous one? Um, Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged. Yeah, yeah Atlas Shrugged and Fountainhead. Um, but uh, Anthem's a very short one, and it falls in this genre. And if I remember correctly, the main plot point was that uh, they sort of lost his, they, that society had historically lost like the, uh, the word I, right? So they only referred to themselves as we's, um, it was only collective pronouns. So, um, so it was the discovery of the word I, which was part of it. And then also the discovery of in that particular society, it wasn't dystopian in the sense of, uh, a highly industrialized, rationalized society it was actually sort of like primitive in the sense that they used torches and instead of light bulbs, and that the character discovered a light bulb and figured out how it worked. Right. So uh, I think maybe like the use of historical artifacts could come into play here, right? With what life used to be like, uh, but you still have to tap into. You have to presuppose something um, consistent about humans that they would be able to respond to that in a way that would move the plot along um or move their move their dissatisfaction with utopia right uh as a um 
in a reasonable way. You couldn't just, you know, like you're, you're saying like, okay, well, there's this like eternal, whether it's eternal connection with God or eternal connection with beauty or whatever as a way to move the, the plot along. But I, I, I do think that it's just, it's hard to, it, like, I almost cringe thinking about it because if you, you base it on that, I feel like that's like a real easy way to make your character quite like two dimensional um, and not particularly justifiable. Right. No. And a lot of those things are used in this book and have been in this book when he's talking about the wall and like, you know, the wilderness and the trees and everything else that's outside of the wall. Um, and he's starting to realize the world around him but there still needs to be that spark that creates the realization of it. And none of those are powerful enough to be the thing. They're good enough to be supplementary, but they're not the one thing that like creates this entire new look on the world, you know? Well, the desire to reproduce is like one of the few like real physical uh, like reactions that we have in our body. Like I think, Everything else from like kind of looking for a meaning in life to like existentialism or creativity, I don't buy that those are like innate, but I do buy that the desire to reproduce is. And it requires another person. Like yeah. eating and shitting doesn't. I mean, it can involve right. other people, but <laughs> but uh, at its core, you know, in its nature, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sam, when you were mentioning Anthem, I was just thinking about, I know we're not talking about the modern world in coronavirus but i'm just imagining ann rand like leading protests <laughs> against like the tyrannical government and how she would advocate for just letting everyone die <laughs> that would be her position yes, yes that would 100 percent be her position all right enough of that or no. um so i wanted to bring up maybe to make the conversation a little bit lighter what the fuck is zamyatin's deal with lips every like i don't think oh, i went God. through yeah i was gonna talk about that every and wrists too, the lips yeah. mainly. This is like a Tarantino film with feet. You know, it's like endless amounts of lips. Like no matter what char- what character he's talking about, like we get to hear about the you know the shape and um, otherwise health health healthiness of their lips. Yeah, what they look like, what color they are, how much they spit <laughs> when they talk. Like, <laughs> dude, your your Very lips plump. and your your lips and your nipples, right? It's the same. It's the same thing. <laughs> elaborate please alex please elaborate. i thought, I thought it was your ears i thought that was isn't that something people say is that like your lips are the same color as your nipples so maybe it's some kind of oh horny, oh, horny like maybe. tit thing <laughs> i think you're giving it too much credit my dude i think he just loves the shit out of he lip. just loves a nice big no dude I, I have heard that before i completely forgot about it but now i'm gonna like store that in my profile for later but i thought you meant like the distance was the lips and i was like no definitely the ears the ears are the distance but yeah the coloring is the lips yeah yeah so do we need to do we need to conduct a uh uh literal fiction book club uh lip to tit study so we could you know find out for sure yeah man that'd be for the real the real fans yeah it'll be it'll be part of our 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 patreon our our only fans account oh yeah for our only fan that's good yeah I wanted to bring up, too, on a lighter note, just the absolute shit show of printing of this book. Because, Alex, how many editions did you order before you got one where the pages were printed in order? Well, I, I bought two of the same. I, bought, I got one, and I was like, well, the next one can't possibly be 
a misprint as well, and it was. But then I, I bought a separate one that actually was fine. It's not, it doesn't feel professionally printed. Like the margins are really strange. But uh, Tom has like the good, like the good edition. Yeah, I mean, mine was like eleven dollars. I got it on Amazon or whatever, and I specifically steered away from the ones that you got, Alex, for that reason. But mine is like perfect. Mine's legit. It's got a really nice introduction. Um, it's got a whole explanation as to like the printing process and the translation of the novel. Everything's formatted correctly. So I have not had that issue, but it sounds like you guys have. So <laughs> I had like mine was pretty bare bones. I just got it because <clears throat> I liked the cover. It's a bunch of like random white faces. And then like right behind the one that's up front. There's facial features and ears on it, and the face looks feminine. It was like, I don't know. It was weird, but different. Mine also doesn't look super professional. Like, the formatting is a little bit weird, but everything's done correctly. So, who is, what second rate publisher is this? Two Gunner Pulp Press. You done good. <laughs> Two Gunner Pulp Press. <laughs> I got the ebook, friend, so I didn't even want to deal with um, the supply chain problems. So, mine is New York Concept. New York concept. Why don't? Why isn't there a major publisher of this? I mean, this is can this is considered a fairly classic novel. I, I'm kind of surprised we don't have like a Penguins edition. Well, so you know? that's the version I have. I have the Penguin. Oh, edition. yeah. Oh, it's just okay. it was just All sold right. out on Amazon when I was looking. Yeah. So mine is the legitimate copy. You guys have bastardized editions. Bootleg. <laughs> <laughs> But it was pretty funny because uh, when Alex sent us his video of him flipping through the pages, he was like, okay, yeah, 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 you know, um, uh, first page, like, it's the first page. Oh, we're at page 46. Oh, we're at page, <laughs> you know, 158. This, he's like, is this a weird literary device? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, I, for some reason, I was, in like, feeling insane. I was like, is it, like, surreal? Like, is it supposed to be one of those books where you have to, like, look for the page? Because I was going to be like, if so, I'm not reading this. What are those, like, the Goosebumps books where you pick your own ending? <laughs> yeah, dude. This guy is actually the foundation of R.L. Stein's career. Right. Let's do an R.L. Stein unit. Who has, like, baby music in the background? I'm going to fall asleep. That's a I'm nice sorry, guys. It's, it's the clock here. Oh, that's... <laughs> that's super creepy. Yeah, you're telling me, man. Do you have some, like, porcelain dolls in the background that are staring at you? There used to be a five-foot-tall inflated clown. Uh, what? That we had to get, we had to insist it would be taken down. Yeah, dude, that stabbed <laughs> that thing with a knife. That's horrifying. I know. I did, I did not, didn't like. Uh, not pleasant. So, the, the other tension of this book that I thought was interesting was, so, in, like, 1984, um, Orwell's, like, you know, like I forget the whole thing, but like the the freedom is slavery, um, the, that line, uh, th this is like an inversion of concepts, right? Um, but in in we, um, D five hundred three is identifying like this tension between happiness and freedom, and it comes off as a bit more sincere. Um, so I don't think like Zamyatin is saying that that freedom is happiness right but that it's like worth having freedom even though it, it isn't unhappy right or rather that it, rather it's worth having freedom even though you are unhappy having freedom um and so what do we think like is the tension between you know human happiness human satisfaction and human freedom and do we think that 
Um, do we think that this is an illusion of uh, the D503's, like the world of D503 state, or do we think that um, that it actually, there is a tension there and that you need to kind of choose choose one or the other in a certain respect? I think we have like an instinct towards struggle and the absence of it is like mentally unhealthy. And I think, I agree. And I think that's why, why in like books like this and dystopian novels, like it's the absence of pain as well as the absence of like happiness and joy. Um, And sometimes like the absence of any pain whatsoever is like a kind of like psychological, like devastation, like a depression. Yeah. I mean, you're missing out on an entire part of living first of all i I mean i look at it in in conjunction with that as it's like a free will issue i mean i just think you inherently want to make your own choices and you want to you know live life in a particular way or you have your own goals and dreams that may not align with somebody else and that free will that people have is just always going to cause issues but also be a good thing on the other end you know, I wonder how this civilization will ever truly progress from where it is without any innovative thought, any free will to pursue anything beyond the confines of what they live in. And I just think that free will aspect can't be undermined in human civilization. Ideally for them, they would uh, evolve out of consciousness. I feel like that's the best case scenario for them. Well, he makes a comment in there where they have become God, like they are their own gods. They are in control of everything. They have everything down to a science. Everything is exactly how it should be. And I I just don't think that's the way that the human spirit, if you will, is designed. You know, I just don't think that's realistic. Yeah, I think it is consciousness that drives it or that's the tension. Yeah, consciousness is like it's the burden. It's like it's it's why our, our race is so evolved. But it's also like the burden that we have to deal with. But it's also why we want free will is because we're aware that we exist. Like he's kind of robotic at the beginning, but then once he starts to wake up, then he starts to have a lot of anxiety, but he's also aware of his existence and wants more. So it's like his awareness of it is what's causing the problem. Yeah, because he didn't, he wasn't experiencing, I didn't get the impression that he was experiencing like malaise or like anxiety prior to being provided with the alternative. It's the alternative that like awakened it all. Well, and there's like a, a correlation between, you know, he looks down on the animals and the ancient civilizations and the way that they did things, but they've pretty much like reduced the society to only specifically survive. It's your food is provided for you. The sex is provided for you. Your housing is provided for you. And you just live day to day. There's no abnormality between this human civilization and how you would look at like the animal kingdom except for the fact that it's cleaner so how does that how does that satisfy what a human being is well i mean a human being is just surviving you know like that's like that's all our like bio like biologically like that's all it is but like we because of consciousness we've kind of evolved to create like meaning structures uh that are kind of cultural Oh, okay. Let's bring in postmodernism, you fucking simp. Oh, don't do that <laughs> to me, man. Don't do that. <laughs> oh, meaning structures. Next, you're going to be talking about, you know... Is like, meaning uh, structures a thing? I was just putting words together. Yeah, no, I mean, th- well, I don't know. I'm just teasing you, but um, yeah. <laughs> no, no, it's a thing. Being... It's a terrible, yeah. annoying thing. <laughs> but it's real. I mean, Sam, yes. you know, use the right philosophy words. You know the books. Uh, well... I mean, meaning structures is 
more or less the correct word. Uh, but uh, I I agree that I don't I think that the search for meaning is a byproduct of us establishing civilization, right? And uh, what that how that meaning is expressed is going to vary by what historical point like juncture you're leaving from. So you know that's one of the reasons why like this dystopian genre is interesting is because it's uh it is it's an expression of like well what what if we want something that is um what if like our like our desire for meaning is distorted right because you could imagine in the like prior to the war that established D503's that society um that state that the people who founded such a state had the intentions of establishing a happy humanity, right? Um, or at least, you know, maybe their predecessors did. But what happens when the the desire for meaning, the desire for freedom is then sort of turned into its inversion? Um, and that this palpable tension between um, the rationalized happiness of society and the freedom of, of, of individuals comes into conflict. and like. I'm not so sure that like it is that humans innately want struggle per se, but I think civilized humans do um, because they're constantly thrown into a, a situation in which they must they must struggle, right? Um, there's the sense in which you can struggle against nature, right? You need to struggle in order to live, but m- most people want to put in as little effort into that as possible, right? Like the the goal is to do as much as you can or as much as you need to do in order to like put food on the table or you know have a place to live or whatever right but like mostly when people put in a lot of work for something they're looking for things like social validation they're looking for things like um like status symbols and 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 the like or you know if they're putting a lot of work on you know like when we read things here right like we're trying to um both uh put our you know, I don't know, our creativity out into the world by making this podcast, but also have maybe a deep, deeper understanding of, um, like, the tradition of the written word, if I was to be, um, uh, I don't know, like, highbrow about it. And a whore um, for likes, too. Don't forget that. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> it, and, you know, I, I won't lie, when we go onto our, our SoundCloud stats and we, we have our little, you know, 200 listens a month, it makes me feel very happy inside. Um, but yeah, I just think that the that it's like that we are self-aware is sort of a precondition for us looking for meaning out in the world. But what kind of meaning we look for is going to vary quite a bit depending on what standpoint you're looking from. But I mean, something that like it seems like that he would struggle with is that like the 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 the, uh, the passage of time is barely relevant because nothing changes. Like that must be such an odd like psychological experience, right? Well, the structure of everything doesn't change, but things do change, right? Like the point isn't to have something self-regulatory where nothing happens, right? Like they're building a spaceship to go colonize the rest of the universe. Um, there will be changes when that happens, but they're trying to come up with a uh, a they're trying to come up with like a set of of policies and actions that continuously re-rationalize society as it changes. Mm. Yeah, but you have to wonder what is, you know, stirring that, you know, colonization of the rest of the universe and, you know, who's actually in charge of that. And I just think there's a huge part of the 
human component missing being the idea of, you know, failure and learning from mistakes and, you know, being willing to take a chance. I mean, it's so structured to the sense that, you know, one plus one equals two in all things. Like that's just is the answer to what it is. So there's no sense in questioning it. There's no sense in trying anything different. There's no sense in learning from anything that may or may not work. And you're just missing a huge element of humanity in that. Yeah, I feel like it's harder. It's almost written into utopias and dystopias where they're so far advanced or when it is a thousand years out in the future and they don't remember what it used to be like that it's kind of hard to give them motivation because they are just content. Like he talks about being or having freedom being the same as being unhappy, but I think he's confusing it for contentedness because he's not like, I guess he is happy at the beginning. He's happy with numbers, but he's not like happy with his lot in life. Whereas later on, he has anxiety from I-330, but he also has like the jolt of adrenaline of actually being alive, even if that's not like, it's exciting, but it's also anxiety inducing. I don't know. It's like all mixed up in one. It's the good and the bad go hand in hand. Right. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, in the beginning of the story, it's very robotic. It's very, this is what I do. This is who I am. This is how society works. Not even who I am, because that's not even a thing. You know, I, me, you aren't even, you know, pronouns that they're using. And it's very, you know, just this is the way that I go through life day to day. And then all of a sudden, as I-330 shows up into the story, there's actual emotion. And like you said, there's good and there's bad. There's the anxiety, there's the stress, you know, there's the entire scene when he's first introduced to the alcohol and the nicotine and she's smoking and, you know, that entire situation and he won't look at her and like, he's thinking of himself as like the, uh, the guardians that they have in the streets, the, the ears that they've basically manufactured to be throughout the streets. And he thinks he's one of those. And he's going through this whole like internal combustion process of emotion. Um, But then there's also the joy of it, the joy of being with her and wanting to be with her again. And, you know, what does this mean? And the wonder of things and the good comes with the bad were beforehand. It was just this completely neutral state of living. There was no high. There was no low. It was just another day. I liked the um, speaking of different emotions in the book. He does. I get a lot of fear when he's talking to the Guardian. He specifically mentions the Guardian's eyes like the Guardian is just smiling calmly at him but he says he feels like the eyes are drills that are coming out of the sockets. And like, I thought that was a very good metaphor or that one stuck out to me of like how terrifying it must be to be around somebody that's the secret police. And they're just like calmly interrogating you and they know that they could kill you at any point or yeah. Put you on a conscription list. Like, ugh. yeah, that is unsettling, um, but he seems content with it. I mean, there's that whole scene where he's on, you know, the subway And he's reading the book and he's reading this poem about, you know, forever enamored are two plus two, forever conjoined is blissful four. And it's just like he's equating this all to like, I'm just part of society. It's the multiplication table. It's just the way things are supposed to be. And he's like not even stressed out at the fact that like, you know, these people have this, you know, overwhelming power over him and any little misstep could be his demise. Like he's just accepting that as a, a norm. At that point, he wasn't supposed to have gone to their office yet. He only feels the fear once he knows that he did something, quote unquote, wrong by not turning in I-330. True, yeah. After that point, then he gets the fear. Like, all the emotion rushes in at once. The happiness, the anxiety, the fear. It's like, 
it doesn't come on slowly. It's almost like a light switch is turned on. Right. I, I guess like two things. I think one that, you know, maybe we should think of this society as one that is like, how do you have humanity without humans in a way? Right. Like, or with a, the least amount of humans possible in the, like, in the humanity sense that we're talking about, like the searching for meaning. And the other thing I wanted to bring up was like that, that D503 clearly has like deeper psychological resistance to this society, especially when like this reference to like the square root of minus one and his struggle with that when he learned it, right? Like there is sort of an irrationality baked into even something like science, um, you know, in our current way of thinking about it, like quantum mechanics would be a good example of that. Um, so it it is, you know, it. I, I think that like how D five hundred three presents himself in the beginning of the novel is more of like him coming to terms or having already come to terms with the the way in which the society presents itself. But he, but I three thirty brings all of his own previous misgivings or feelings of insecurities about that society out. Um, not so much as like, like this is not a discovery that she brings to him. It's almost like um, it's both a discovery and a reminder, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I see that as well. I mean, it, it you can see where he already, and I think that's probably something you could inference as part of every person in this, in this society is that they probably have their own internal thoughts because they are free thinking of things that don't necessarily add up, but they don't have anything that like creates them to act upon. And that really starts to show with like, you know, his inability to rationalize this math equation. And it's like stuck with him since his childhood. And then these other things have popped up and he's like, wait a second, like, this reminds me of that. And it's just, it's probably internally thought about by, uh, you would guess, by a lot of people and a lot of people in this society, but it's never strong enough to act upon it. You just accept it as it is what it is. I think, Sam, it's similar to what uh, you had mentioned too, of how do we imagine a, a human society without humans? Because like, we do have to presuppose that a lot of these things were innate in him. I just, I honestly can't imagine what a life would be like if you had never had any of these thoughts. But there's other emotions that people have that don't get questioned, like S, uh, whatever S's number is, the other guy in the triangle. He's like suspicious and curious, but that's not like seen as against the one state. Or people are, yeah, multiple people are curious throughout the book, but that doesn't seem to like arouse passions. So it's not, but that's like just as human. Like the idea of wondering about things or being curious and wanting to know more. Like we're not just mechanical robots, but I don't know. It is hard to imagine it without just because it would be pretty bland if it was completely cut out. Yeah. And then on the flip side of things, like, you know, I, I don't know if you guys had any particular thoughts on this, but like the the disregard for human life, like there's that whole record that's explained about you know somebody who did some type of wrongdoing and you know they step up and they get you know more or less sacrificed to the you know the powers in charge and then there's another record that's talking about when they're building um 
and uh, I can't seem to remember what it's called right now, but the, the ship that they're building, um, you know, they're going through test phases and it just wipes out 10 numbers, you know, 10 people. And it's just like a blip on the radar. It's just like this disregard for like people. It's like, oh, it's only 10 people out of however many millions. It's a fraction of the society. Like, who cares? True. Yeah. He does have to <laughs> rationalize it to himself, though. He is like, he does go. I remember that part. There's like three paragraphs where he's like, our society has gotten past this. Like, I would have had to, it would be like 10 out of 100 million. That's only this percentage. But, like, it does imply that obviously it bothers him somewhat. Because why is he having to rationalize it to himself? Or, like, right. this is just for his thoughts. But, but, yeah, I agree. They, like, atomize the person or the guardian atomizes them and they just, like, don't care. They're like, oh, cool spectacle. And then they just go back to their factories. Right. And it's like they have this, um, it's, it's that reflexive, I don't know, big other or like, like, I, I guess you're like super ego, right? Where like you have the initial reaction of having pity for that person who is dying, right? But then the immediate reflexive thought is this rationalization, right? You can't get rid of the fact that there's like a feeling of empathy or, or sympathy towards these individuals. And then you, um, but that how that feeling or thought is internalized is going to be through the social lessons that you've had. Right. And I mean, could you imagine like a society where you just move on? I mean, he's talking about 10 people. I don't know if he if, you know, the writer's trying to portray them as like literally napping or if they're just not paying attention. And that's what he's referring to. But they just 10 people just get wiped out from this test on the integral for them, you know, building this rocket and stuff. And he rationalizes it for a couple paragraphs. But at the end of the day, it's like, oh, it just is what it is. It's this fractional amount of this great society we have. And you just kind of like toss it away. But do we not do that? Yeah, we're just I mean, less we effective do. at it. Well, on a macro scale, we 100% do. And we always, I think like all, all civilizations do. Well, I mean, it's not even on a, like, what do you mean by a macro scale? Well, I, I, just, I just mean that there's a certain amount of loss that just go, comes with having a, a, a civilization. And that's something that right. we just, like, accept. You know, people go into the meat grinder every year, and we don't think of it as a tragedy because it's like a figure. But, like, I think that they're, I don't know, you hear stories about other, other countries in the, on this planet where people will die in the street and people will just walk past them for hours. Like, right. that's, that's a, th that's something in the human condition or whatever which allows that which happen. i which i i think is why the thinking about this book as sort of like the it is the natural end of an industrialized society right it's the logical conclusion of of this idea of industrial progress is a good way of thinking about this book because he is both he is commenting on on like a lot of these themes are things that already exist within the societies Amyatan is it has experienced or um, has uh, interacted with. So we're you know we do make those rationalizations at the level of macro, right? Like we brought up last week about like cars, right? And how we just like we live in we live in a society with cars, and that comes with a certain amount of deaths every year just because of the way we choose to transport ourselves. Um, you know, but even like something like, uh, you know, I don't know, think about like the war on terror, right? Uh, sending, sending in a cruise missile, you know, to blow up an area, right? And there's collateral damage and they go, oh, well, I guess they shouldn't have been there, you know, like, 
we all just move on with our lives and that's more of a you could call like a micro um situation so uh i think all of those those rationalizations those like okay you know or, or what am i going to do about it kind of thing um is uh it's important to recognize in this novel i think yeah no and i mean from like the the big macro sense from you know i don't i don't know about you guys but it's not like a lot of people are staying up at night thinking about any genocide that's happening in the world or you know all the people that are dying from you know unjust causes every day and to alex's point you know there's countries and there's places that people die and people you know see dead bodies constantly and they walk by them and it's just part of their everyday life and they've become almost numb to it. so at a certain point there is this ration rationalization that we have um for those things and that might be portrayed pretty well in this book it's weird that we're conscious of being alive and that drives so much of this but i feel that the rationalizing death or just avoiding it as a survival mechanism of like suppressing our awareness of consciousness just because it's too terrifying to be constantly aware that we could die like at any point oh yeah no and i mean even in the book he's talking about you know when somebody gets a death sentence he equates it to you know 50 less years of living and it's just like this really binary way of looking at life i mean i don't know it is pretty jarring or it's weird it like shocks you when you see a dead body like if you're especially if you're not like expecting it if you're not expecting to like walk around the corner and see somebody in like an open casket or something it is jarring but it's also weird like you can't look away kind of thing where it's just i don't know it's weird it draws you in but also you don't want to look at it okay i mean i've never seen a dead body and i think part of the eventual comfort people get is if it's either in like a ritualized like expected format like um an execution or something like that um or perhaps it happens it's you know like you live on the the streets of bombay or whatever right and um you see dead people all the, all the time just on the streets who have starved you get used to that fact yeah with the execution there's justice to it there's like reasoning behind the death it doesn't seem arbitrary like you're next there's like comfort in knowing that oh okay well they must have done something because the benefactor himself is performing the execution. Right, right. right. No, I mean, at that point, it's it, it's a sentencing. You know, you're expecting it. You think that they deserve it. You think there's a reason for it. I mean, I've only seen one dead person in my life, and it was unexpected in the way that it happened. But you can't help but think like, okay, you know, this was a person. This was somebody that I communicated with. This was you know, this was a, a living being. This was a, a human that had their own thoughts, their own life, their own everything. But I wonder at what point, you know, in certain parts of the world, in certain times in, in civilization, certain countries, when you see so much of that, that you just stop even, you know, equating that, where it's just, you know, it's either part of life or you justify it in some way. And, you know, it, it, what's the threshold that, like, makes that divide between this is, like, a human being and this is just part of life? I think that's I part know, of the dude. jarring piece <laughs> of seeing a dead body, though, is, like, they're not obviously animated. So it's, like, it looks like a human, but it doesn't have the feeling or you don't get the vibe of a soul or just anything in it. And that disconnect is very jarring. Oh, yeah. No, and in this book, they they go a step further and you know they atomize them into water 
So you're not even seeing a dead body. It's not even, you know, any representation of what it used to be. It's just a sentencing for something that they did or presumably did. And then all of a sudden it's just like, you know, water. It's just they, they've perfected this system to just turn somebody into nothing. And then you move on with your day, which probably detracts the emotional aspect even more. Oh, yeah, for sure. If they're just if there's no body, then it's they weren't even they didn't even exist. It's like right. you can just immediately forget about them. Yeah. What do you think is the the reasoning behind using that particular tool, right? Rather than like, say, you know, a guillotine or like a firing wall or something like that. This idea of like liquefying the body. What do you think about that? I mean, I look at it in in two ways, you know, where it's it's the rational, logical, you know, they've got it down to a science way so so people can rationalize it and say, okay, well, you know, it's it's the perfect way to execute somebody. It's the perfect way to make this happen. It's, you know, been reasonably deduced to happen exactly how it should be. And then the other thing is, from a psychological aspect, there's no body. There's no person there anymore. You're not looking at somebody's face. You're not looking at who they used to be or what they used to do. You're not thinking about what profession they just were and then they weren't. And it's like this clean divide between those two things. Completely removing them from existence. Right. Cool. Interesting. And no the burial process. scientific way to do it. Yeah, there's yeah. no right. burial process and they're like literally taken down to the atom, which is the society is so perfect they can just immediately get rid of it at the atomic level. Yeah, you're just water and carbon to start and that's just you're right back to it. No 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 intermediary stage where you're decomposing. It's just like boom. From uh from dust to dust, right? But with no soul. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think that also would help to dehumanize the situation, you know, where you're basically giving a visual representation of like, this is what you're made out of and that's all you are. Right. Huh. That's really, an, that's a very unsettling thought. I mean, but do we have like a counter argument to that? Like, are we anything more than, than watering carbon? I would like to think so personally. I mean, I would like to think that there's more to the to the human being than just what you're made up of. I think that there's something different in humanity and civilization and the way that we handle ourselves, albeit not always great or, you know, righteous. Um, I would like to think that there's more than just the matter that we're made up of, that there's something else inside of us. But I think I'm consciousness not a gives us that spark of something that you can't really explain. Just like our struggle and our striving for something, we can't really explain what it is we're striving for, but we know it's there. It's kind of, in my opinion, the same idea. Just like there's our base function, like the desire to breathe, the desire to have sex, but then it's like it somehow turns into much deeper things like love. And it's like, I don't know, I guess we can explain it in terms of just chemicals and everything being physical, but there's also, it just seems so much more than that. Because, like, look at all the art that's been produced because of it. I feel like consciousness is just the random or the monkey wrench that gets thrown in that changes everything. Yeah, and I don't think that it's like, it. you can't just say that because we are created of this, you know, of matter, right? That um, there, it does feel a little bit like a, uh, deflating, I guess, because, you know, you're only atoms and therefore, like, what sort of what's the point? But I don't think it has to go that direction. I don't think being made of, of matter is like a, it needs to be the logical conclusion is like, well, I guess we can just, you know, melt everybody and nothing, nothing matters. But, um, but like the, what else is there? I think 
uh, Troy, you're right that it's that it is you know consciousness and being conscious of things, and that at least I tend to view it more of like the motivation is the same motivation you would have of climbing a mountain, right? Like why do it because it's there to do, mm. you know? Like that's why life's worth living is because you can at all. Um, but I can't really fall back like on the you know there's a soul inside us inside of us or you know we are um inherently valuable on the basis of like some composite part of ourselves you know yeah well it is weird between like you always describe it as like my hands my body even my soul but it's like if you own all of those things like what exactly is you is it that spark of consciousness but you would even describe it as like my consciousness so it's like a weird circular thing where you're chasing your tail, but you can never pin it down. Yeah, no, I mean, it's just like a, like people find happiness and fulfilling lives in so many different ways. There's not a cookie cutter thing. Like, I don't think you can deduce it to just survival or reproduction because there's so many people that don't have kids and have phenomenal lives and are perfectly happy. There's so many people that, you know, don't have the means of survival readily available. They don't have shelter. They don't have consistent food sources, but they still do something and they are somebody and they find this drive within themselves and they live lives that they enjoy and appreciate. And there's just something outside of the natural world that, you know, creates it where, you know, and what I mean by that is like when you equate people to animals, like if, if you're talking about even despair or hardship, you know, animals will go through times in certain environments and times that they can't find food and that life is hard. And you could say, well, they have the same struggle and they have this want to live. But the the natural confines, we look at most of nature and like the way that like, okay, reproduction and survival and all this other stuff is important with, with people it's almost a completely different element. You know, people make art, they make music and they don't do these core survival things and they still live fulfilling lives and they feel differently about it. So if it was just about survival, then wouldn't the idea be okay? Well, if I, if I live well enough and I have kids, then I have a happy life and that's what we all do, you know? But, the, but in some ways, doesn't the, uh, the pursuit of other things, whether it's climbing a mountain or, artistic creativity or building model trains or the the things video games isn't that kind of taking the place of the uh the impulse to uh survive to like the impulse to thrive for our basic needs like is that not like scratching that itch i think because because i don't i don't think of human beings as separate from the natural world i think that we are the natural world just as much as a deer is um, yeah, we just have really bad fangs and claws. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, no, no, but I mean, like, human beings are natural as well. Like, the yeah, separation sure. of humans from the natural world is like a, like a uh, environmental... Unnatural thing. thing kind of. Yeah. <laughs> it's, art- I, it's artificial, yeah. Yeah, I disagree. But I don't know if what I said made sense, but I do think, like, we have that urge and we find other things to fill that hole once the basic uh, needs have been met. I mean, if we wanted to bring in, like, uh, I know, Alex, you've been reading Freud lately, but, like, if we were to bring in Freud here, uh, you know, it's like, it is, it's the, like, your libidinal drive, right? That brings you to, to you know, do things like write, you know, write great novels or, you know, paint a, a beautiful picture, right? It's this, um, 
civilization separates you from the you know from the direct satisfying of those needs that you need whether that's like sex or food or whatever right and so all of that like energy all of that that motivation has to be um has to be sort of canaled in a particular direction and so we choose different directions to express that yes that's yeah you put what i said in a much better way (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I mean, but I mean also at the same time, if if we're like, if you're consistently getting sex, food, shelter, and like rests, you're normally like you're doing all right. <laughs> you're better off than quite a few people in the world if you have all those. Right, but then right, you always see these people who are like uh, hyper successful, but like successful at something that's not like they're grinding at all the time. So maybe not necessarily like the businessman, but like. Like an author who writes a book, becomes wildly successful, and has like as much women, drugs, like food, any everything they want, and they fa- they fall into these like depressive states once they reach that. It's like a trope, but I think there's something there because they've lost that that's that thing to struggle against, and then they'll like go through phases of like you know rededicating themselves to art, but. Right, they've lost their edge. You know, they've yeah. lost their especially people who like come up from nothing. You know. And like they have this, you know, it's that the the world in which they are trying to strive is like an El Dorado, right? Like where they can they can get the cars, they can get the women, they can have all the money that they want, all the things that they were denied from their previous time. Like the the examples are often like uh, that I think of as like boxers, right? You know, they fight their way up to the top, and then they get, you know, it's the Rocky trope, right? They get. They get to the top. They're feeling good about themselves. They lose their edge, and then they lose their title. Um, and I think you're right, um, Alex, that there's there is that sense in which this, you know, uh, that that desire to, you know, to thrive um, when that's taken away from you, it's a huge loss of meaning at the same time. Mm. And that's why a lot of those guys get addicted to gambling. Like as silly as it is, like that is like. It, scratching that itch in like a very intense way. I mean, we've we've had some time gambling together. Um, yes, we have. <laughs> yeah, Tom, Tom's bank account is pretty bad about it. <laughs> uh, no, fortunately, I didn't. Well, I don't want to say I didn't feel it too hard, but I was able to recover. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, there's something about that is like a it it gets your adrenaline pumping in kind of a similar way. Uh, as like succeeding at something like achieving a goal or you know eating a dope meal like hooking up with someone attractive <laughs> yeah um just an fyi for you folks here um if you are doing something that makes noise please mute your mic yeah um, whoever's pouring drinks <laughs> he's oh, fulfilling his earthly passion that's right oh you know, he's striving for the better life <laughs> tom's pursuing the better thing that's I, right i didn't realize you could hear me making a martini my apologies <laughs> oh we can hear it sloshing don't you worry but if it makes you feel better sam does this on almost every single episode i can hear him pouring the the whiskey into his diet coke <laughs> chloe's, chloe's yelling in the background at something and the cats are fighting yeah the fucking <laughs> fridge is going off at like like it sounds like a jackhammer for some reason <laughs> <laughs> well, now that we're already talking about it, I'm just going to continue. But I, I genuinely did not think that it was going to pick up on that. But my apologies. No, no, <laughs> no worries, I, dude. I wish I wasn't at work, and I wish I was at home drinking as well. <laughs> well, uh, I lost my train of thought. Uh, cool. I think this is a pretty good spot to conclude. Does anybody have any last, uh, last words on the book here? 
no, excited to finish it. Yeah, I'm excited to see where it goes, just because it. I don't feel like it's going to end the same way that uh, Brave New World or 1984 does. Okay, okay. I think that's a, that's a reasonable prediction. Um, I hope not, anyway. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think it's really interesting, and we'll see where it goes, but it's just like, it's so many different directions that this could lead into, and um i'm very curious and i'm hoping that i won't be disappointed by the way that it ends and the way that the story progresses but thus far it's got me really engaged i mean i think it's really interesting um it's just where does it go from here it's a real page right. turner it definitely is um <laughs> so um all right well thank you everybody for listening um next week we're just going to read the second half of this book uh so uh if you'd like to leave a voicemail we have our book nerd hotline is the number is one nine seven eight two five five three four zero four. We will eventually getting around get around to playing um our second round of Chris DiLoretto voicemails once we have um either this down or the lockdown gets lifted, um, which we are told in New Hampshire is going to be on May fifteenth. Have a good night everybody. See you night everyone. See you later.